this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As we're turning there, a reminder that tonight, uh, always on uh, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday evening, we kind of have a service that closes out the, um, the, the weekend. is the three greatest events in human history, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with worship and a devotional thought to close things off. And that'll happen tonight at 6. Each of you are invited. We pick things up in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Paul writes, by the Spirit of God, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which you also received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve, and that He was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep or died. And after that He was seen by James, then by all the apostles, and then last of all He was seen by me also as one born out of time." due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. And therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift to human history, the gift to every man, woman, and child who has ever lived, is living, and will ever live of your gospel of those three great truths in, in human history, the death, burial, and resurrection of Your Son. And we thank You, Lord, for these realities, these realities that have changed our lives and will yet change our eternities, not in the sense that it's in any doubt, but that one day we will continue this relationship in glory because of Him. And we pray that You would fill us with Your Holy Spirit now and you would help us to hear your heart and the Apostle Paul's heart through this passage this morning and what it speaks to each of us. And we pray for this work of your Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. First Corinthians, like virtually all of the uh, New Testament letters or epistles, uh, was a, and is a corrective uh, epistle. And by the time the Apostle Paul comes to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he has already spent 14 chapters uh, addressing all kinds of kind of crazy things that were going on in the church at Corinth. Corinth was like the wild west of churches in those days. There were so many things that were uh, out of uh, whack there. 
And uh, at the start of chapter 15, he shifts gears to address a new problem within the church, and it was a doctrinal error that was found in the church having to do with the resurrection, and specifically with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And apparently there were some in the church at, at Corinth that were asserting that there is no resurrection from the dead, again in verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you, and he's writing to Christians in this church, say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Now, the origin of this false doctrine within the church uh, could have come because of uh, false teachers that were teaching no resurrection within the church, or it might have uh, come into the church as an influence from the culture around them. At that time, the Greeks did not believe in resurrection. Corinth was a major Greek uh, city, and so the strong influence against resurrection. We have an insight into their uh, view of the resurrection, their low view of the resurrection, in the book of Acts when the Apostle Paul on one of his missionary journeys came to Athens and he went to Mars Hill, was asked to speak, and he began to preach uh, Christ to the men that were gathered there, the philosophers in, uh, at the Areopagus there, and they listened to him intently until he came to the resurrection of Jesus and the, the fact that this man who was addressing them believed in resurrection, it broke up the entire meeting. Uh, they began to <clears throat> mock the very idea, and the meeting came to an end. But the Bible tells us that there were uh, a number of people that were in that audience. They understood what Paul was communicating, and they came to faith in Christ uh, on, on that very day as a result. Also, it isn't unlikely that some there in the church who had put their faith in Jesus there in Corinth did so without um, giving much consideration to the importance of the resurrection, and so they were easily moved away from it by the culture or by uh, the false teachers. And I think all of us can certainly understand this. There's no uh, brand new Christian, I think, that fully understands and appreciates the the fullness of the gospel and the truths about Christ that we have been saved uh, into. And so today, many people, I think, likewise, they put their faith in Jesus in order to receive everlasting life, to receive the forgiveness of sins. They're saved, but they don't really understand the importance of the resurrection to the Christian faith or the importance of the resurrection to their own uh, Christian uh, life, and uh, thus they consider the resurrection to be something that is relatively unimportant. It's something that you can believe in or not believe in, <clears throat> but it's, and it's no big deal one way or the other. But it is a big deal, and the Apostle Paul knew it was a big deal, and so he saves the best for last in terms of his corrections of, of what was wrong in that church by rising up and letting them know that the resurrection is of great uh, significance in no uncertain terms. And so clearly, uh, the saints at the church at Corinth, they were not well taught uh, on the subject, so Paul steps forward in chapter 15 to do what they had failed 
to do. And the result is the blessing of it. God works all things together for good. And, uh, and so the blessing is, is that we have this incredible treatise on the resurrection called 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, in case you sit here as a Christian and you think that uh, addressing the importance of Jesus' resurrection uh, might not be <clears throat> uh, worthwhile now, <clears throat> excuse me, while it might have been worthwhile 2,000 years ago, that it's hardly worthwhile to uh, speak to a group of Christians about, uh, by and large. But let me help you uh, to realize that uh, this problem concerning the resurrection and the belief in the resurrection and holding the resurrection in high esteem is as great a problem today in Christendom as it was uh, in the church at Corinth 2,000 years ago. A couple of examples related to this, a very recent survey done by the BBC in the British uh, Empire, uh, Great Britain, uh, they asked of those who self-identified as Christians about the resurrection, and they found that 25% of them stated that they did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And additionally, um, closer to home here in the United States, a recent survey, survey of Americans who self-identified as Christians found about the same percentage among uh, mainline uh, uh, Protestants and Catholics, while among those who self-identified as uh, evangelical Christians, the percentage was thankfully uh, higher, 90%, though it ought to have been uh, 100%. But it speaks to the fact that many who identify as Christians somehow believe that the uh, resurrection of Jesus is not foundational to Christianity, that it's something that we can feel free to believe or not believe, that we can take or we can leave. And so Paul's instruction here in 1 Corinthians 15 is as contemporary today as ever it was when, when he uh, wrote the letter. And there may be some of us sitting here, you know, if the truth were made known in the privacy of our own uh, hearts, and we certainly don't acknowledge it as any kind of a, 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 a negative thing or a condemning kind of, uh, of thing, but you might be sitting here this morning and we find ourselves in the same boat as uh, some of those in Corinth, where uh, you have never, ever understood the vital importance of, of the resurrection to uh, Christianity. I want you to notice that in verses 1 through 4, the Apostle Paul, he defines the gospel there. And he introduces the term gospel in verse 1. And the word gospel means good news. And in fact, in the original language, it's, it means even more than that. It means great news. And the gospel is very simply God's great news, God's, uh, I mean, just awesomely gracious invitation to man uh, concerning uh, the, uh, salvation. And so the gospel is the great, great news from God to man. It is the greatest news that any human being will ever hear in the course of, of their life. And that's why Paul declares in verse 3, for I delivered to you first of all. And when he says first of all there, he means this is of the very first importance. In other words, the gospel is the single most important message that we carry as a church, 
It is the single most important message that we carry individually as Christians, and thus it's important that we get it right. And I do think it's wonderful to think about that as we share the gospel with other people, to realize as Christians that we are telling them the single greatest thing that they will ever hear in the course of their life. Whatever their reaction might be to it immediately, they say in the United States of America, on average, a person ultimately puts their faith in the Lord Jesus somewhere about the seventh, eighth, ninth time that they hear the gospel. It's relatively few that you get to share the gospel with, and immediately they give their life to the Lord. There's planting that goes on, somebody else follows you, and there's watering that goes on, someone else even further will uh, reap the harvest of the work that's already been done, but the news is the greatest news that anyone will uh, ever hear. Well, what is, is it exactly that makes up the gospel message? And he tells us there in verses 3 and 4. And I think here we have the greatest definition of the gospel in the entire Bible. And so God's good news uh, to man is as follows. In verse 3, first, that Christ died for our sins. That Christ died for our sins. He didn't die for his own sins because he didn't have any. He died for our sins. And what is it that uniquely qualified him to be able to die for our sins in any kind of a meaningful way? And uh, what uniquely qualified him was his sinless life. Concerning uh, this, I don't think it's possible to fully understand or appreciate Jesus' death for our sins independent of the understanding of the sin offering in the Old Covenant, uh, in the Old Testament. In Leviticus chapter 4, there's a sequence of events that are, are given in the description of how a sin offering was to be offered uh, to God by the children of Israel. And an individual guilty of sin, he would uh, bring a lamb without blemish to the priest at the tabernacle. He would then, as he stood before the priest in the tabernacle, lay his head on the head uh, of this innocent lamb. It was a picture of substitution and then the transference of the sin of the guilty to an innocent sacrifice. And as the person who was guilty of sin looked at that lamb, they knew it was going to die in their place for their sin. And the lamb then was slain before the Lord. The priest would cut an artery in the lamb's uh, neck and order that it would produce a quick death. And as a result, this warm flow of blood would pour out of the lamb uh, until uh, it, it would begin to weaken. Its legs would then begin to buckle, and ultimately it would collapse in death. And no one could stand there as a sinner and uh, watch that, that sequence of events and not be powerfully instructed concerning and, and, and humbled by the awfulness of their sin. That my sin has brought death to an innocent party. And then the blood of that lamb <clears throat> was to then be applied to the horns of the altar by hand in order to ceremonially clean 
uh, the altar. The remaining blood was caught in a bowl and poured out at the base of the altar. The fat of the lamb was then removed from the lamb, placed upon the altar. It was burned to the Lord for a sweet aroma to the Lord. In other words, what was happening there was not merely this kind of mindless, physical uh, ritual that someone was doing, but it, was, it represented the heart's desire and the prayer of a child of God to be made right before God, to receive the forgiveness of sins by God. And that was the sin offering. And all of it, like the entirety of the Old Testament, was a picture and a type and a shadow of the Messiah who was to come. Jesus who was to come is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the Bible says of Jesus uh, as the satisfying payment or the satisfying sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. John writes it in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 2. And he himself, that is Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, the satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins, the only satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins. And He Himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the whole world. And when you see Jesus on the cross at Calvary in your mind's eye, you don't see as that individual lamb and a sinner and a priest standing there in the area of the tabernacle with one set of hands placed upon the head uh, of the lamb. Uh, you don't see but one set of hands upon Jesus' body or head or several hands laid upon Him. Uh, the idea is to see the hands of every single person who's ever lived. And that means every single sinner who has ever uh, lived and is alive now will ever live in human history upon Him. And then He bore the sins of us all. I think it's very, very interesting to realize that at the time of the giving of the law of the sin offering to Moses in the Old Testament until the coming of Jesus, until the coming of Messiah, was fully 1,500 years. And so for 1,500 years, God used this sin offering in order to drive home the necessity of transference and substitution in being cleansed of sin. And every time the sin offering was offered, there was the recognition that the forgiveness of my sin has occurred at the expense of the death of an innocent. That's called substitution. And that my forgiveness, my salvation occurred because the Lord has made a way for my sin to be transferred to an innocent, transferred to another. And that's the doctrine of transference. And so, as you think about it, for 1,500 years, the Lord had been driving home the point that I am, to sinners, I am forgiven on the basis of substitution and transference. I am forgiven of my sin on the basis of substitution. A substitution and transference, substitution and transference over and over and over again so that when Jesus comes on the scene as their Messiah and declaring that 
the cleansing of their sin would occur on the basis of substitution, Him dying in our place, and transference on the basis of faith, they shouldn't have acted as if either of those were foreign concepts to them. They had been doing it for 1,500 years. God had been preparing them for 1,500 years. Isaiah prophesied of it in his famous uh, chapter 53 of, of the book of Isaiah, the great messianic chapter, and he put it this way, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, that is Jesus, Messiah. He has put him to death. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he, that is the Father, shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. There is that propitiation. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. John the Baptist got it. He got it immediately, and he understood the connection between the sin offering of the Old Testament and what Jesus had come into the world to do, and when he declared upon seeing Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what was John saying of Jesus? Jesus is the one who is going to die for our sin He's provoking Old Testament imagery. He's going to be the one that dies in our place. The sin of the whole world is going to be transferred to Him. And this entire uh, ceremony of the sin offering was intended to produce within the person making the sacrifice and the nation as a whole this profound sense of horror this stunned sense that something here in this entire uh, thing that we've been called to do, something seems to have gone terribly wrong here, something seems terribly backwards here, and everything about that sin offering was intended to do that. And as they stood there before the tabernacle, here is a living young lamb standing there, breathing, innocent, all in one piece, and yet before their very eyes in a matter of minutes, it would be slain, it would be bled, it would be gutted and cut in pieces until it no longer resembled a lamb anymore, and all because of their sin. And yet they got to continue to live. They got to leave the tabernacle in one piece. And all of it, of course, is just a faint shadow of Calvary. All of it was a preparation for the scene of Jesus hanging uh, upon that cross where Jesus hung there for my sin. And when the day began, the day of His crucifixion, you see Him there 
in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is breathing. He is healthy. He is whole. He is innocent. And yet in a matter of three hours, he will be hanging on a Roman cross. His face will be so savage that he will be unrecognizable for who he was, his entire body so brutalized that from head to toe it is just one open uh, bleeding wound. And in the words of the Holy Spirit, again from the book of Isaiah, just as many were astonished at you, so his visage, his face, was more than, more than any man, and his form, his body, more than the sons of men. And when you look at him, and you see him on the cross again in your mind's eye, and you realize that this is not merely a man on the cross. Uh, I, uh, that would be horrible enough. But the one who hangs upon that cross is the very Son of God, and the very God the Son. And then you ask yourself, as you stand and you look at him hanging on that cross, how is it that he dies? And I live. And what both the sin offering of the Old Testament and the crucifixion were intended to communicate to mankind was it was intended to horrify us. It is intended to get people's attention. And then having gotten our attention, they were meant to teach us something something uh, that is lost in the world that we live in today in an increasing measure, and that something is the seriousness of sin in the eyes of God. And the sin offering in the Old Testament, the cross of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, is like a great blank blinking neon light on the highway of human history. And it communicates the cross of Jesus as the, does the seriousness of sin. And people reject it today. And people will reject the sin offering and the imagery of the Old Testament and even concerning Jesus in the New Testament. And they talk of the religion of the Bible as that bloody religion. But I ask you, are there any reminders of the seriousness of sin left in our nation? Is there any stigma attached to sin anymore? Is there any shame attached to sin anymore? And are we as a people better because of it? Never apologize for God. Never apologize for the Old Testament. Never apologize for the New Testament. All of it is necessary for us to be able to see ourselves clearly and life clearly and our needs clearly. Now, God knows that in the fallenness of this world and in the strength of our own dark, sin-addicted nature, that we need a reminder of the seriousness of sin that is greater than the indoctrination of the world around us to minimize it or to view our own sin as something that is harmless before God or inoffensive to God. And these sacrifices did that. And they were the, a reminder of the holiness of God, that God cannot be approached casually by sinners. 
that our sin cannot be ignored, that it must be addressed, and that it must be addressed in God's way. And faith in Jesus is that way. And the cross of Jesus Christ is intended as well to provide hope to mankind and to provide hope to every sinner and to provide hope to the greatest of sinners in human history and in the world today. Because there is something about the sacrifice of Jesus on that cross that we recognize of it as we see Him nailed on that cross in order to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. Something about that scene that we know way down deep, 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 deep inside of us, and it's all borne witness to by the Holy Spirit Himself that there is no sin and that there is no lifetime of sin that is greater than that sacrifice that He made on that cross. And when we see Jesus hanging on that cross in order to provide the forgiveness of sins, we realize that nobody's getting away with anything in Christianity, and that this isn't a cheap grace that God is offering to us in salvation. It's not empty platitudes about forgiveness, but that this is an indescribably substantial addressing of my sin and addressing of my guilty conscience. And when we see Jesus hanging on that cross for our sins, no one can say, my sin is greater than that sacrifice. Not even the worst sinner in the world can look at the cross of Calvary, that great sense of something has gone terribly wrong here, and believe that. There is just something about that cross, that sacrifice, that scene, that Savior that is able to overwhelm the guiltiest conscience and give it hope for forgiveness and give it hope for peace. In order to cleanse our sins, God had to provide us with something that we would uniformly recognize as being infinitely greater than all of our sin. And that something is the salvation that is found in the blood of Jesus Christ. And when you talk about blood in the Bible, it represents the life. It is the sacrifice, the salvation that is found in the very death of Jesus Christ. And so he begins his definition of the gospel as Christ died for our sins, but he continues on with the second and third part in verse 4. The second part, that he was buried as a proof of his death. And then the third part, that he rose again on the third day. And here Paul reminds them, he reminds us that the gospel he preached to them included the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That it takes all three to be good news to us, truly good news as sinners. It is not enough that He died on the cross and that He was buried. It also required that He would be raised from uh, the dead. In the entire book of Acts, Anytime you see the gospel being preached there, there's never a mention of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins without it also being coupled with His death and with the mes uh, message 
of uh, the resurrection. And why is the resurrection so important? There are so many reasons, and he gets to in, into them uh, a little bit uh, more fully as he continues in the chapter. And, uh, but we'll content ourselves with one reason this morning, uh, that Jesus' resurrection verifies the fact that Jesus' death paid the full price that was required for the forgiveness of our uh, sins. During Jesus' public ministry, He had declared that He would provide the full and satisfying payment or ransom for the forgiveness of our sins. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20, Jesus declaring, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. And so then the hour of His crucifixion comes, and there Jesus died to pay the price for the forgiveness of our sins. But the question is this, how were we human beings to know from the vantage point of, uh, of earth that His sacrifice was acceptable to God the Father? that what he had said about salvation being found in him was actually true. And God's answer to that question is the resurrection. The resurrection is the evidence that the Father accepted the perfect sacrifice of his Son for the forgiveness of our sin. And it is the resurrection of Christ that is God's way of confirming to us that our faith in Jesus Christ is very well placed. In fact, it is perfectly placed. And how wonderful is that truth. In theological terms, Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, speaking of Jesus, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. In other words, His resurrection is the proof that we have secured, that He has secured our justification and our forgiveness before God. And then Paul reminded them that this was the gospel that had changed their lives. Not a two out of three gospel, not a one out of three gospel, but a three-out-of-three three gospel is the, is the gospel that has the power to change lives. And Paul told them that this was the gospel that he had preached to them. This was the gospel that they had received, verse 1. And this was the gospel that they were standing in. This was the gospel that had brought a stability into their life, spiritually and in all ways, that they had never, ever known before even as we sang here this morning. And Paul told them in verse 2 that they were saved because of this message and his warning there in verse 2 about believing in vain. The idea is to believe in a gospel, to believe that something is truly good news in this world, much less good news from God that has not provided an answer for death that has not provided a victory over death is to believe in something that is vain. It is empty in the face of the totality of need that we have uh, as sinners. And without the resurrection, you do not have a demonstrated 
victory over death, a demonstrated authority over death. And no gospel that does not provide a victory over death can be considered good news. And that's what Paul is communicating to them in clearing up this confusion on their part related to the resurrection. Well, enough about the Corinthians. The great question for us this morning is, are you saved? Have you trusted in the gospel this morning? Have you received the forgiveness of your sins and entered into a personal relationship uh, with God? And how does that happen? By hearing the message of Jesus' death upon the cross for our sins, His burial, and His resurrection from the dead on the third day, and then putting your trust in the Savior that has provided that gospel, provided those three great things that make up the gospel and introduced it into human history, putting your faith and trust in Jesus as the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of your sin. And when a person does that, and, and it is a gift, it is a gift that God extends to us, there's nothing we could do to earn any uh, of this. Christ has not only done all of the heavy lifting, He has done all of the lifting in our salvation. We merely have to receive it by honoring God and the gift of His Son by putting our trust in Him as our personal uh, Savior. And when a person does, a great miracle occurs in our life that the New Testament describes, Jesus Himself described as being born again by the Holy Spirit. Think about it. Think about the miracle of God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit coming into our lives now and bringing eternal life into our lives, providing us with the power to live a Christian life and to follow Jesus, giving us the will to do and the power to do of God's good pleasure. And it is in this regard that one of the great witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ in this room and all around the world is the changed lives of people who were one thing before they trusted in Christ and were born again and became something entirely different as a result. The quality of life that we enjoy. And you look at the world as it tries to explain it uh, away as some kind of a psychosomatic thing or that we've all got some kind of a religious gene. A lot of us weren't even looking for God, weren't even looking uh, for uh, Christ in, in our lives. And He broke through in our lives and we can testify to a person that the quality of life that we are enjoying as a result of the risen Christ living inside of us is a life that we never dreamed would be possible for us. Our lives, your life can become a witness to His resurrection power as you would trust in Him this morning. And that's good news. And the greatest news that you or any sinner will ever hear in your lifetime, and the importance of hearing the news, but then acting upon it personally and making Jesus your Savior this morning. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, 
And we would love to answer your questions and pray with you to make today the day of your salvation as you put your trust in this Savior for the forgiveness of your uh, sin. And for us as Christians, Easter uh, and the resurrection, of course, it is the capstone to the three greatest events in human history, the death and the burial and the resurrection uh, of our Lord Jesus. And the resurrection uh, is God's confirmation to us that our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, past, present, future, is very, very well-placed. And what a peace that brings to us. What a joy that it brings uh, to our lives. Not only spiritually born again, not only in a relationship with God, not only possessing everlasting life, but what that salvation brings into, in terms of peace into our mind and into our heart, the joy that is a part of our life, the hope that is a part of our life, the expectation and faith that is a part of our lives daily, to say nothing of it in terms of eternity. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the Father's confirmation to us that all of this and more is true, and He gives you the resurrection of the absolute absoluteness of it in our lives. Hallelujah. There is so much to be thankful for in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, it always baffles me as I live in this world how many people reject your Savior, they reject your salvation, and yet never give any kind of thought or attention to why they are sinners, why they are in the condition that they're in, how to be forgiven why they die, what's the victory in life over death. And here you have given unimaginable, infinite, wondrous thought to all of it and provision for it in such a way that it just humbles us. The detail of this salvation and yet how simple you have made it for us to receive. Thank you for your heart of love toward us. Thank you for your concern for our souls for so many long years when we never gave it a thought. Thank you for being the hound of heaven and working and working and speaking and doing, Lord, until we finally surrendered. And this morning, Father, on this day we celebrate Jesus' resurrection, we thank You for Him. He really is a sinner Savior, and we are grateful. We thank You for His death. We thank You for His burial. We thank You for His resurrection.
and we thank you in his name. In Jesus' name, amen. Mike, would you close us? Thank you.